Hello and welcome to Caged In Presents Copla Connections, brought to you by the Breadcrumbs Collective and hosted by me, Petros Pat Syllabus. Seeing as it's the run-up to Christmas and for MCU fans, Marvel Studios are giving you a nice little Christmas treat of Spider-Man No Way Home. I thought no better time to jump in and talk about the amazing Spider-Man. I think the only superhero film that has a Coppola connection felt very fitting for this. This is obviously episode 25. As I said, the film is The Amazing Spider-Man from 2012. And my guest for this episode is the amazing Andrew Godian. I absolutely loved this conversation and I'm sure you will too. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, what we do over here on Copla Connections is watch every single film in the collective Coppola family filmography to determine are they the greatest film family of all time based on this single film alone. So I get my guests to just have a rambly chat about the Coppola family, how they got to know them, deep dive into this film and then make a judgment call. Does this film make them the greatest film family of all time we will be down in the sewers with this movie talking all spoilers shooting webs at all the plot points of this movie so if you haven't seen it now's your time to duck out if you want to watch this film you can head on over to netflix in the uk where this is streaming right now so i guess all that's left to do is to get bitten by a radioactive spider avenge the death of your uncle climb up some fire escapes to give your girlfriend a little smooch and battle a lizard man who has some ties to your family as we make some Coppola connections. With the release of Marvel's Spider-Man No Way Home tomorrow, I thought it was only right to swing back to 2012 and look at another outing of everyone's favorite webhead in The Amazing Spider-Man. Directed by Mark Webb, great name, (laughs) with a script by James Vanderbilt, Alvin Sargent, and Steve Cloves. This film stars Andrew Garfield, Emma Stone, Reese Fans, Sally Field, Martin Sheen, and Dennis Leary. And our Coppola connection for this episode is the film cinematographer, Yours and my mate, John Schwartzman. Joining me today as we shoot webs at this film to find out if it deserves to spin a web in the Coppola Family Hall of Fame or should be trapped under a glass and thrown outside is journalist and podcaster Andrew Godian. Andrew, our promise is you can't keep the best kind. (laughs) So I hear, uh, but I also believe that uh, if you can talk about The Amazing Spider-Man, with other people, you have a moral obligation to do that thing. And that's what's at stake here. Not choice, responsibility. (laughs) (laughs) How are you, Andy? I'm very well, Petros. How are you doing? Good to see you again. (laughs) I'm, yeah, you too, man. It's, it's, uh, yeah, obviously I guested on your fantastic podcast, uh, Rambling and Amblin Podcast. Uh, One of the questions I wanted to start off with by asking Mm. is, is there any superhero movies in the rambling oeuvre? No, no, there, there aren't really. It's not something that they've kind of hopped on uh, the bandwagon, as it were. Uh, 
I guess like the close, closest thing you can get to is something like Ready Player One that has various amount of characters in the background, uh, including Batman at one point. I, I don't know if, Sp I can't remember Spider-Man popping up in that. I feel like that would have been uh, too much of a copyright hurdle to jump over. But who knows, in this kind of day and age, maybe the long uh, belated sequel to Who Framed Roger Rabbit will end up being about Roger Rabbit in a in a month in the group of superheroes. Time will tell. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm sure, yeah, it's, I'm sure it will probably get the Space Jam new legacy <laughs> treatment, right, where it's just IP galore and just like, it will be, it'll be, yeah, there'll be everything. It'll be Batman and Superman on the screen for the first time ever. Iron Man's there and they'll all be there. It'll be, be an absolute clusterfuck. Of and IP. Roger Rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, well, yeah, on the talk of the, like, superheroes, would, like, what superhero would you love to have seen or see Spielberg tackle? He might be a bit long mm. in the tooth to tackle one now, but... I feel like... He... Like, and I, I'm almost certain that if I look, Googled this now, it probably would be a, uh, a fact. But I feel like around the time that Richard Donner did Superman, uh, Spielberg must have been someone whose name was in the mix, like coming off the back of Jaws. And like, just for the very simple reason being like Superman being this kind of like symbol of American myth making and how that feels quite Spielbergian. But even to a point, I think Peter Parker... Spider-Man feels quite Spielbergian in a way because it is like this uh, kid in that uh, about a kid kind of being met with extraordinary uh, circumstances, which is a very ambling trait as it is. Just young people being thrown into the deep end with something fantastical and seeing if they could keep their head above water, which is essentially what the whole early stage of Peter Parker's life in any form is, really. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm surprised that the kind of uh the tom holland run haven't had like an amplification to them of like kind of because i know that yeah like, the uh homecoming kind of had like it's like a john hughes vibe more than anything vibe right? to it yeah 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 and i'm surprised they didn't lean into that or i guess like i don't know it's an unwritten thing in hollywood to not tread on steven's toes <laughs> unless, you're, unless you're jason reitman <laughs> Don't go too close now. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I always start off these conversations, uh, Andrew, by asking, when did you first become aware of the Coppola family? And it's never more fitting to say, like a spider's web of a mm. family that they are. I must, say, I must also uh, give you a shout out for that wonderful uh, family tree that you've made with the little podcast document oh, that you had out. It's very helpful and just generally quite entertaining to look at because you do just kind of go, Jesus Christ, yeah, I mean, they're, they're everywhere. <laughs> 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 but to answer your question, I, like, and I was, had to think about this a little bit because I, I think the first Francis Ford Coppola film I would have seen was Jack just because I was a big Robin Williams fan as a kid, but probably didn't appreciate mm -hmm. it was a film made by Francis Ford Coppola in the slightest. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but like when I, I would say I, I saw the Godfather trilogy for the first time when I was about 13, that kind of point in my life when I was like, all right, I'm, I'm into films and I'm really going to get into films now. Let's tick off all the 501 greatest films you must see before you die sort of lists. And of course, like the Godfather's a, 
an apocalypse now they're all in there so that's when i started when reading more you start to really realize but his kind of significance but also as a as a unit you you soon realize how connected they all are <laughs> yeah like and i, I i'm always interested because i i saw the godfather at a similar age how did it impact you at, at that time because for me i always look at it and be like I've, I've watched it but i don't feel like i've really like like watched it when i was like 13 i don't think i like picked up on like what it actually was talking do you know what i mean I, like yes. maybe maybe i was just a thick 13 year old but like, no just, no like, i'm with you a lot so, of men talking in dark a rooms. lot of men talking and it was like and it's also at that stage in your life where you're like you know you're into film and you like when you ever you watch one of these films that's kind of like heralded in one of these books you know you don't really go in with like a kind of critical eye or like a a sense of like being like I'm just going to experience this film and see what I think about it. You go in the mindset knowing that you're wanting to going to come out at the end going like yes that was amazing. <laughs> so, so you you don't really have that eye quite yet. Um and, and this will give you a picture yeah, yeah. of the the kind of 13 year old I was. Uh, my parents were out like on a Saturday evening and um I <laughs> instead of being like all right house ourselves let's invite some mates around and underage drinker to do all that i was like i'm gonna stay at home and <laughs> commandeer the tv because i know the godfather's on sky so i'm gonna watch that <laughs> while my sister had a sleepover up, upstairs and i kept getting annoyed that they were making too much noise whilst i was watching the godfather <laughs> <laughs> this is a really important scene this is funny guys can you keep it down <laughs> He's going to this toll booth. I don't know what's going to happen. I've been promised guns. <laughs> <laughs> amazing, amazing. Um, uh, a left field question? Well, not even that left field. But have you ever met a Coppola? I know, I know you you work in journalism. You yeah, and you're in I, the film sphere. I had to kind of wrap my brain a little bit just in case, because again, like they're this sort of family where like there's connections that you might not even like even think to look at like because even just looking at some some of their individual names you wouldn't automatically assume um so no not knowingly is, is the short answer <laughs> <laughs> i would love I had to. a fantastic answer to that recently I had a fantastic answer to that recently where somebody was like, I saw Phantom Planet. Does that count? Like Jason <laughs> Schwartzman was playing drums. Like, oh, I guess that you, you breathe the same air as yeah. Jason Schwartzman. I'll, I'll definitely take that. You uh, are physically in the uh, same amazing. place. So, I think that'll um, work. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what would have been the first John Schwartzman film you'd have seen? I know it's kind of a bit of a weird one to say. Like, I, I don't know too many people who see films specifically for a cinematographer unless it's yeah the big Roger names. deakins normally yeah 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 john schwartzman doesn't seem like the like he's there going oh john schwartzman's doing this one i must Let's must go, go out there yes. <laughs> <laughs> the only reason i watched dracula untold uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> but i go back over his filmography i think the first one that i would have like seen as a kid was Armageddon on like VHS when I was about nine years old. So I like even like kind of looking a bit further back at that early point, there's some stuff in there that mm -hmm. I like see biscuit. I remember seeing from a young age for whatever reason, it was just something that was on in 2004. Uh, 
and then also like getting into like Michael Bay when I was younger as well. So seeing like The Rock, uh, Heather's that was a big teen teen movie for me as well. That's one of his early early credits. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, he's got like he is this like workman, yeah, like cinematographer, and he's kind of got these like really interesting um, relationships, especially with Michael Bay because. You can either thank him or blame him. He basically created that Bay aesthetic, right? Like mm-hmm. he was there on The Rock. He was there on Armageddon. Like he, he, he. Pearl Harbor's he one, that, one of the big ones. Yeah, yeah. He helped shape that look basically. And I guess there's yeah, there's two ways you can look at that. You can yeah. thank John Swartzman, or you can kind of damn him with hellfire you, for kind you of really can't in Michael Bay do. Yeah, and you can't understand that aesthetic as well the kind of like uh influence it ended up having on how generally hollywood blockbusters looked in the like early noughties as well like you think kind of the early fast and furious movies or uh j- just pretty much like any- mm-hmm. anything rob cohen made as well in the early noughties all that kind of action high octane early naughty stuff is cribbing from the michael bay sheets and a big part of that is john schwartzman's overall look for those films as well yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, yeah, you kind of look at like the the Jerry Bruckheimer, yeah. Simpson like stable of films. Like he seems like one of the key consistents in that to kind of shape that look mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And it's like, yeah, I'm glad you bought that box set in the end. Gone in sixty. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. For, for, for those of you listening who might not know what I'm talking about, I had a I I, I po- recently posted a photo on Twitter of the Jerry Bruckheimer action box set, which is seven films, which I think include uh, Crimson Tide, Enemy of the State, The Rock, Con Air, Armageddon, Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor was in there. Might be missing. Gone in 60 seconds. (laughs) Gone in 60 seconds. That's the seven. But I've recently found out there is a Blu-ray release that has the addition of Deja Vu. Deja Vu. The Denzel Washington, Tony Scott film. Indeed. So, like, I feel like I'm... I feel like I'm... I might need to up my up my ante and have to buy that as well, which kind of makes my Saturday trip into town, which was absolute hell, to go get it, uh, kind of redundant. <laughs> uh, A fine CEX pickup there. So, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I regret nothing, Andy. I absolutely regret nothing. Uh, so let's talk about. The Amazing Spider-Man. But before we do, let's listen to the trailer. How did you get out there? Fire escape. It's 20 stories. Your doorman's intimidating. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Mr. Parker. Not much to tell, really. Peter lives with his aunt and uncle. Did you catch that spider guy yet? No, but we will. This guy wears a mask like an outlaw. I think he's trying to do something maybe the police can't. Can't? You know, if you're gonna steal cars, don't dress like a car thief. You a cop? You seriously think I'm a cop? In a skin tie, red and blue suit. Who are you? I know it's been rough for you, Peter. (laughs) I forgot all about that thing. It was your dad's. Your father was a very secretive man, Peter. Dr. Connors. I'm Richard Parker's son. Your father and I were going to change the lives of millions, including mine. Extraordinary. How did you come up with this? 
There's a rumor of a new species in New York. It can be aggressive if threatened. Stop him, because I created him. That's not your job. Maybe it is. Thirty-eight of New York's finest versus one guy in a unitard. Whoa! If you want the truth, Peter, come and get it. I am issuing an arrest warrant for the masked vigilante known as Spider-Man. I'm in trouble. first see this film and why did we pick it to discuss on this podcast i i would have seen this when it first came out back in 20 summer of 2012 um which was a big year for superhero movies because you had like the avengers in the may of this year then you had the dark knight rises also in the july Mm -hmm. of 2012 i think these these two only came about two weeks apart and like it's not when you kind of compare like have it sandwiched in between those two it feels like you often would forget to men- mention that the fact that the Amazing Spider-Man also came out in that summer. <laughs> so, yeah. But the the main reason I chose to pick it was because I've loved Spider-Man from a very young age. He's always been my favorite superhero. I had a old double VHS tape of like the Nicholas Hammond's live action seventies Spider-Man movies, uh, Spider-Man Strikes Amazing. Again, and Spider-Man: The Dragon's Challenge. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait to revisit that to see how well that's aged. And, and then, like that, that love only grew like growing up in the like mid to late nineties into the early noughties because you had like the nineties uh, animated series that was really cool that had like the mm-hmm. like <laughs> theme tune to it. Uh, like all the Marvel cartoons in the nineties, it's equally as good as like something like the X Men series or the Silver Surfer series. And then uh, I remember really getting into the alternate comic book line that started in like 2000. And then that, of course, all, lead, all led into the Tobey Maguire, Sam, Ra- Sam Raimi trilogy, which were, were huge, huge movies for me when I was a kid. Uh, particularly that first one when that was coming out, because I, I can really distinctly remember that whole uh, discussion about the 12A certificate uh, coming in because it, mm-hmm. of it originally getting a 12 rating. And my dad was thinking about not taking me because I wasn't 12 yet. <laughs> I was like, dad, no. <laughs> uh, so I, I was disappointed as I was to when they made that decision to not go ahead with a Spider-Man 4 uh, with Raimi and Maguire and co. And they were going to go ahead and reboot it. I was a, a little disheartened, but at the same time, you know, this, this shtick happens in comic book runs all the time. So. New Spider-Man movies, fine by my book. And I say I liked the initial kind of packaging that they were giving, giving with like particularly the casting of Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone. They're two 
they're, they're, they're really smart, smart pieces of casting because he's clearly not going to do the Tobey Maguire thing because he doesn't doesn't have the same vibe at mm -hmm. all. And Emma Stone's like kind of pitch, yeah, yeah. pitch perfect casting for Gwen Stacy. And um, it looked cool to have like the lizard being used as a villain because he was always one of my favorites from the cartoon series as a kid. Uh, I really liked 500 Days of Summer uh, when that came out, which would have been Mark Webb's first, mm -hmm. yep. first movie. Like his first movie and the, and the only movie he had done before this as well, which is kind of nuts. <laughs> Well, that, that, that kind of thing happens a lot, right? Yeah, kind of particularly this day and age. Like, especially now. Yeah, it's like, like near DaCosta, I think, is the, the, the one that springs to mind mm. of, of recent, where it's like Candyman, like, not even out, and they're like, she's doing the Marvels. Like, she's, she's kind of like, <laughs> Yeah, and it, it is that thing of, I don't know, yeah, like Ryan Coogler, I guess, to some degree. I know yeah. he had a couple of films. He had Fruitvale Station and then Creed, and then it's like, let's suck him up into the marvel like beast machine that we've got going on um so obviously you talked about your trepidation for this for this new mm. like and i think i think there was a kind of uh a bit of a fatigue from everyone right because this what it was five years gap between yeah. was spider-man three the, the yeah the spider-man three and then this one and it's a uh, I guess it's, it's it's as much that thing of like Batman. It's like, are we really gonna see his parents get shoved into that alley once again and killed? Mm. And it's that thing of like, are we gonna have to watch Uncle Ben get killed <laughs> again. again with this? So, what what were your first initial reactions when when you saw this in yeah uh, July two thousand twelve? I I I kind of I, I went back over my an old blog of this and like a lot of my feelings for. For it remained qu quite similar but uh i think that trepidation can the main thing i kind of felt initially watching it is like even the film kind of feels that trepidation about going over the same beats again and it feels kind of awkwardly rushing through certain parts and it i remember thinking it kind of felt like it had this it had the shadow of the trilogy over it that it found like a little hard to shake but i remember i remember liking a lot of the kind of tweets to the way that they were shooting the web swinging, because I remember one of the big, uh, well, I think even the first teaser was this one shot, like first person perspective of him running on rooftops and swinging. And that seemed to be like the big thing they were pushing is, this is why this looks different now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, which then ends up, it doesn't end up really playing much of a part in the film itself, but <laughs> I wonder if that's on an editing floor somewhere. But uh, the main thing I took away from both back then when I watched it and even now going back to it for this was the pairing of Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone really do make it work, even when it's kind of getting stuck in its own kind of narrative corners or changing tacks for other plot threads uh, <laughs> before kind of really exploring other ones that they, they give it a, a lot of heart uh, in a way and make it give it that distinctness distinctness yeah distinctiveness that allows it to at least kind of feel like its own thing and not something that's having to work as a kind of shadowy imitation well before yeah before we get into the the, the heart of this conversation and really mm. pick this part of film i always like to get my guests 
Do yes. you a brief synopsis for the film? Andy, fire away. I'll take it. So Andrew Garfield is Peter Parker, your everyday socially awkward teen genius who loves photography, has great hair, and is really good on a skateboard. Um, <laughs> Peter has been raised by his caring uncle Ben, Martin Jean, and Aunt May, Sally Field, after his parents left suddenly one night, only to end up dead in a mysterious plane crash. Keen to know more about his parents, well, his father anyway, and what he was working on before he died, Peter goes to sneaks into Oscorp Labs to get a chance meeting with Dr. Kurt Connors, played by Reese the Fans, his father's old lab partner who is working in the field of cross-species genetics. Wonder if that will come back up. While evading detection, however, Peter accidentally stumbles into a lab filled with genetically enhanced spiders, one of which bites him, quickly, quickly granting him the powers to do whatever a spider can. Minus the mechanical web shooters, which Peter himself later makes. But when tragedy strikes, Peter must learn how to balance his life with the responsibility that comes with his powers. Something which proves even more difficult as he deals with a burgeoning romance with classmate Gwen Stacy and has the matter of a, of a giant lizard man roaming the streets of New York to deal with, who may or may not have something to do with Dr. Connor's experience. And that's the amazing Spider-Man. That, that, <laughs> that is the that is the amazing that is a beautiful uh, plot synopsis. And I've got to, I've got to tip my hat off to you. I think you're the only person who's written one down. <laughs> I'm calling you all out right now. I'm calling you all out. You did do your homework, guys. Uh, I, I got amazing. the sheet. <laughs> <laughs> so let's so. Let's kind of talk about the. I, f I feel like this is a perfect time to talk about Andrew Garfield and his kind of casting mm. as Peter Parker and how he works as both Peter Parker and Spider Man. Yeah. Because, like, they. I know, I know there's a lot of talk that a lot of people say, like, he's the best. Peter Parker, Tobey Maguire's the best Spider Man, and then maybe Tom Holland is, like, a kind of good mix of both do you know what I mean right and, yeah and that so, old, so, yeah, old discussion like Bale was a better Bruce Wayne but he's not as good as Batman or Bennett like that, that old uh, that old kind of nugget yes, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um so yeah so how, how... He, he's got the weird kind of like particularly now that we have the Tom Holland ones he's got that weird kind of middle child syndrome that's descended upon his portrayal now where everyone kind of sees it as the troubled difficult one and that kind of expectation does work in its favor in a weird way because he he does approach it as a much kind of spikier peter parker who like as i kind of like made light of in that synop synopsis he is this he is a much like trendier cooler more stylish guy than like the toby Maguire one who was yeah he's, he's a bit yeah. of a square <laughs> and slightly even to tom holland's one there's a bit more kind of like awkwardly voice cracking kind of teen uh nerd trope than this mm -hmm. than this peter parker is and i i like the way garfield kind of approaches it as uh peter parker has kind of uh actively made himself more removed and while you could read it as socially awkward it's kind of like this uh uh kind of the trauma of abandonment abandonment issues kind of plays into his 
characterization where he keeps him quite a closed off person because even his relationship with Uncle Ben and Aunt May, while there is a bit of there is a lot of love there, he is still quite aloof with them a lot of the time um, in this mm -hmm. one, which is not something that is ca what, characteristic like, of Tobey Maguire at all. <laughs> I guess, like, to, to jump in slightly to the plot of this, what I don't quite understand is obviously, like, one, uh, one of my first questions was, how old is Peter Parker <laughs> meant to be in this? Obviously, like, later on it is, is established that both him and Gwen Stacy are 17. Mm -hmm. I was like, I ain't, yeah, I ain't buying it. I ain't buying that for one second. Um, and then it's like, how nerdy can you be as Peter Parker when you look like Andrew? Yeah, Dunn? I mean, he's, you know he mean? looks like, too good, right? It's, uh... Yeah, like the, the, I, I guess like the opening of this, like just gives a lot, like uh, asks a lot of questions, like well, like that made me ask a lot of questions in regards to like the certain things, like if peter is this kind of boy genius and really precocious and stuff like that why is it taking him till 17 to pay such an interest in what happened to his parents and like yeah why is it taking him i i, I want to assume like in that flashback we get at the beginning of his parents um kind of yeah running away in the night and him being dropped off to aunt may must be about seven or eight years old maybe yeah there's so been some time <laughs> There's been about nine years. Yeah, there's been about nine years that he's lived with them. And he's only now come across this briefcase where yeah. he's like at his A most random flooding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it, it kind of, it, 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 it felt like, I don't know, quite sloppy writing to me. Yeah. Like, I, I, I think you alluded to it earlier that you go. I was yeah I was just gonna say that's kind of like my main issue with this film like I've got really not a lot of problem with the way kind of Garfield approaches character or anyone really approaches the character it is like you say there are these plot threads that just and even just the setup it just feels kind of and we're off <laughs> uh -huh. we're, we're just go yeah, yeah. We're, we're doing it now and this is he's doing it now for reasons of finding a briefcase after a flood and it's it's a case of like you just are expected to just kind of buy that it's suddenly a renewed interest. You're right. It is. It's not really baked into it in a way. You 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 might be able to speak to this more than I can because I'm not like I, I love Spider Man like in the kind of uh, cinematic like world and stuff like that. But I'm not I'm not too much like clued up on 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 the comic books. Do, do they ever like go into like the idea of his parents in in the comics? Is there like this kind of thing, or is this kind of a total new invention for this film? Um, certainly not more, not really in the sort of ones I've largely read. Um, they they have popped up a few times, and there's like moments where they there's like life model decoys of them recreated that to trick him into thinking that they're alive, which is just pretty mean really <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they've also been like secret agents over time and what have you they've had a lot of like they've been reused in like lots of weird different ways but uh i i must say whenever i kind of come across it it's not something i've i'm ever that that really but like it's not something that really intrigues me having this kind of like mystery around his parents what is more interesting mm -hmm. to me is that it's just this kid who's got ha who has had this kind of trauma in his life and like a lot of like the best kind of 
Spider-Man stories focus on the kind of downtrodden, like uh, how 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 much life is just kind of shit for Peter Parker a lot of the time. It's like his his uncle dies, he never knew his parents, and he's not someone who's got like a high paying job, and he's often living from paycheck to paycheck, and like. That, those are the more interesting stories. So whenever one, which is where like both the Garfield ones do kind of lose me a bit, is when they try to tie it into like this whole thing that like his from birth he was designed, he was meant to be granted these powers, and he was meant to be because it plays plays up much more in the second one about the fact that he his genetic code is like specifically designed to match this spider bite and what have you so that it can <laughs> <laughs> and I, that sort of stuff which kind of removes like the everyman element and the kind of more relatable like he's just a random everyday kid who gets this incredible scary extraordinary thing happen to him and like whenever that starts being predetermined with like kind of a predestination element to it i'm a bit like nah that's not interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in these kind of early moments of it, like we've talked about, you, you mentioned how this film kind of like barrels along and we kind of straight mm. into it. But like when I was watching it again, I was like, I kind of clock watched and I went, we're like an hour in and there's no real villain. It's kind of like a lot it's happens, but at the same time, n- not a lot happens. Do you know what I mean? It's kind mm-hmm. of like they have to, I don't know. It almost they didn't learn the lessons from like Spider Man Three. Almost, it's yeah. Like we, we're trying to put loads in there. We're trying to give us. We're trying to give the audience, yeah, this this back story of his parents, and we're, but we're, we also need to do the origin story, and that kind of feels very like I don't know, like thrown away. And I think it's done a, a lot better in something like um, Into the Spider Verse, where mm. they really play into that idea that like the spider bite is just like happenstance and really like an inconvenience. I think like that kind of yeah. film really plays into it with like Miles Morales, like kind of going, ow, like just slapping it off. And it's like, not as like in this, it's like, he's in that room full of like the, the genetic the glow spiders. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And everything's kind of like, it's all like, and then like yeah it's like you keep getting the shots of the spider kind of crawling up him and it's like we know what's <laughs> going to happen like yeah don't, don't stop fucking like trying to tease us out with it and i guess it's what the mcu version of spider-man did quite well so yeah gone, we're not giving you any of that stuff because you know it and it's like i guess this falls victim to a lot yeah. of films of this time where it feels like we have to explain everything to the audience and almost like uh i don't know like spoon feed them where it's like this is an origin like this is a new spider-man film so again like this is just like like the comic books this is a new run by a new creative team they go oh no we have to start from the beginning we have to give you the origin story again yeah I, like I, it kind of comes back to that like idea of looking at the Andrew Garfield run as like the troubled middle child because it is like, and this is where that weird tension comes in of like that shadow of the Raimi trilogy, and it does end up impacting a lot of uh, the kind of like key character beats. I feel because I think it's probably perfectly fine for them to do the origins again, but like kind of commit to it 
harder or don't do it at all is, is what I think is the issue here. It kind, of, it kind of ends up somewhere somewhere in between where it doesn't really properly commit to it because it doesn't really do like the kind of like go for a body horror thing whenever when he does get bit and he and he gets the powers quite quickly. It's literally as soon as he's been bitten, he's on a subway train fighting some goons and getting his hand accidentally stuck to a woman's shirt, which is a weird, weird beat. Uh, and then, and then, the, and then the next day, he's going on Bing looking up spider bites, and that's just kind of then how it keeps developing with him hopping on his skateboard, doing flips and what have you, and realizing he can make these web shooters. And it goes through all that kind of like discovering and getting to grips with powers in such a kind of flippant way that you don't really feel the kind of exuberance or joy that you can if you do just kind of like yes you've seen it 10 years ago in Sam Raimi's movie but this is a chance to try and do something different with that and with this new Peter Parker and it doesn't really it doesn't commit to that at all and just kind of commits to this more half-baked approach and that I think that also builds into Uncle Ben getting killed as well because that happens just like He's suddenly walking past in the same place that the Peter accidentally lets a robber get away, and he's literally on the same street, shoots dead, moving on. It's that again. It's that mm-hmm. it feels like the film's panicking about not wanting to like hit too familiar beats, but then at the, then doesn't actually with those beats doesn't try to do anything that different with them, and ends up kind of shooting itself in the foot as a as a resp- <laughs> as a result, and the and the characters are the ones who suffer more than anything else mm-hmm. well i guess what one of the things that this film does in regards to that is it has to make everything like come back to peter and it like mm. really like just the weight is on his shoulders because it's like uncle ben's death is his fault connor's is his fault like mm. everything's like his like it's it, it's a lot moodier and i guess it falls victim to that thing of like it's the Nolan Nolanification yeah. of Spider Man almost. Do you know what I mean? Even it's down like, to the color palette. Like and... <laughs> it's a bit darker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah brings brings on to John Swartzman. So yeah, let 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 let's whilst we kind of uh, clumsily segue. <laughs> what do you think of the look of this film and the look that, that John Swartzman brings to it? I, I I must say it's one of his. I do think it's probably one of his lesser blockbuster works because. I, I, and I do think it's like we say, it's kind of coming off of this approach to want to add some grit and Nolanize it. And, and like, as I said earlier, that kind of uh, big thing in the promotion initially was this uh, first person perspective wall crawling and web shooting, which even then, that itself doesn't end up playing a part that much. And the film overall has this kind of like quite. Uh, saturated, washed out look to it, which can often leave it feeling a little flat. And particularly when CG starts taking over, it's not the most dynamic looking superhero movie at all. I quite like the uh, means in which like some of the shots that, and this is more really more down to one composition and also just the means of the kind of either contorting the actor or a CGI recreation of the actor, the, the way Spider-Man moves and looks. Uh, and generally how it more generally how he moves i quite like uh the suit i'm less mm-hmm. hot on but like the way they kind of stylize certain moments with spider-man skews a little closer to like comic book panels 
than say like the Raimi run did, which I appreciated. But overall, I found like the general look of it uh, quite flat and not yeah for something that's supposed yeah. to be the amazing spider-man it's quite oh <laughs> yeah it really felt like kind of going back to that original title of the comics really should have lent into that like, yeah vibrancy that that had that it needs a different title kind of... for sure <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. the moody spider-man yeah like, the, kind of like the, the, ooh, the emo spider-man uh well obviously like the my chemical spider-man this is an interesting time to... <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. Uh, this feels like an interesting time to be talking about this film because obviously like, mm. now this is somewhat both these films are canon within the mcu right because we've we've seen we will see tomorrow day of release that whether andrew garfield one is in mm. the new uh spider-man no way home and obviously we've seen that two of the villains, the villain from this film is in uh, Spider-Man No Way Home, as is Electro from mm. Amazing Spider-Man 2. So, like, what are your thoughts? Are we going to see Andrew Garfield <laughs> crop up in No Way Home? It's the million-dollar question at the minute, isn't it? Uh, it has been quite funny watching, like... Uh... Andrew Garfield filled the question in the like tit tit boom promotional campaign where he's just like, <laughs> like all I'm going to say is like either some of you are going to be right some of you are going to be wrong and some of you are going to be really happy and some of you are going to be really upset and I am sorry in advance which partly makes it is either just him being very good at deflecting from it or it is he saying no I, I'm not in it um, and the way he's kind of talked about his experience on these two films I'd be, I would actually be quite surprised if he ends up being in it. I maybe, I would be less surprised if Tobey Maguire's in it, but Garfield in particular, I'd be very surprised if he ends up popping up. Um, and I, well, I, I could see the film just being a I've regurgitation so of villains more than anything else. I've, well, I've, I've seen, I've seen like some, some, some fan theories online and stuff like that. Like one being, there is a moment in the No Way Home trailer where. Um, uh, Zendaya's character, MJ, yeah, is like caught by, caught by a web, and like so, somebody said, like that's gonna be the Garfield Spider-Man who catches her as like a kind of nice like redemptive arc. To yeah, what happens. I saw that too. Stacey in the Amazing Spider-Man two, and then there was like I'm not sure if you saw the uh. whole thing that went around with the Brazilian trailer. With, oh, with the, um, the lizard looking like the, he's getting <laughs> punched by a ghost. Yes. <laughs> yes yeah, that, and, the, that and, was and there is there is things in that trailer. There is like, what, three villains up against one, one Spider-Man. Spider -Man, but like, but it's like kind of, it's framed as if they're heading off against, like the way they kind of are all looking and the way yeah. they attack is like they have a, an opponent each and it's like oh, it feels it very much feels like they should have the stage not shown set. that in the trailer yeah. keep that one in the keep that one in the drawer like everyone's gonna come and see it anyway <laughs> everyone knows <laughs> it's a weird one to me because like I, like yes all, all the evidence is kind of more pointing towards the fact that they are both going to be in it but there is just something about particularly Garfield popping up which feels odd to me considering he's talked about how a lot of working on these movies was quite like disheartening and 
uh, particularly in looking at working in the Hollywood machine and seeing how these characters who can do, like I think it's in a Hollywood Reporter roundtable where he says about how it's really quite heartbreaking to see how characters you love and characters you know can really have a positive effect on people go through the kind of uh, studio business conglomerate meat grinder and just everything that's kind of more produced for the story is for the sake of selling something rather than kind of staying true to the nature of what people love about this character and I, I it, it surprised it would it's why it would surprise me to see him there in a big multimedia crossover of it <laughs> or or he's just really really fucking he's really played he's the long game <laughs> yeah he's got people talking about like him and spider-man again and then it's gonna be yeah. like tomorrow people are just gonna be either foaming at the mouth in anger because they detest his spider-man or they're gonna be jizzing in their pants yeah because they're gonna like i'm excited to see like either either way if they're in it I've, like if if both him and toby Maguire are in it I'm, I'm gonna be like that's great like you, yeah that's you cool. are you are they are they are obviously cribbing from the like they're, they're acting like spider-verse didn't happen yeah do you know what i mean like it's like like no way home is like oh yeah we're, we're gonna do spider-verse but we're just gonna bring in villains <laughs> like, and then like <laughs> yeah and if nicholas cage isn't there as spider-man noir i'm i'm flipping a table i'll tell you that uh, imagine if I he think. is though that, uh, that you're, you're probably still flipping the table but in a in a very different uh energy level <laughs> for a very different reason yeah yeah yeah. I, 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 i'm flipping a table like tom Wamsgans in succession yeah just <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. If you're a Succession fan, you you will get that. Mm -hmm. If you're not, I'm not going to spoil it in any way. Uh, so let's get back to the Amazing Spider-Man and kind of talk about some of the the side characters mm. here. What one of them, uh, I I just want to kind of briefly talk about is uh, Rajit Rafa, played by uh, Ifran Khan, who I, I think gets he gets done dirty. In yeah, this I mean, film, right? again, kind of like this feels like another thread that once upon a time went so much further and just yeah as a result just doesn't feel like anything because another thing to kind of like and i think you can really feel it in this movie is the fact that this script as it was being written first james vanderbilt 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 <laughs> wrote a draft uh when it was still raimi spider-man 4 then some of that got taken over when they decided to reboot it namely i think the lizard stuff because sony was super keen on having the lizard and then that itself got a rewrite by Alvin Sargent, who had already written on the Raimi trilogy. And then that itself ended up getting rewritten by Steve Cloves, who was very much known for adapting all the Harry Potter films at the time. And I do feel like you can kind of feel this kind of free-tier bake going on where someone else is coming in and certain threads end up to tossing for screen time. And part of it you could maybe put down to sequel baiting but particularly the Erfran Khan stuff is just so quickly forgotten about after one scene on the bridge he doesn't I'm right in thinking he does 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 not appear again he's meant to be this kind of shadowy Oscorp figure that's kind of trying to push Kirk Connors to make a cure for a dying Norman Osborn something which does end up playing a part more in part 
too, but Khan isn't back, so who knows what happened to him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is, that is bizarre, and I kind of like. I, I know it's a very well trodden uh, trope in films, but I, I I I almost really like that thing when a, a film goes for it's not the supernatural villain who is the true evil. Yeah, it is kind of man man themselves, and it kind of felt like that was a really interesting angle they could have pulled for this, like being like this is a world of the fantastical with a kind of web shooting superhero and a a lizard man, but really like it's it's the it's the pressures of kind of corporate and kind of science to push things forward that has driven kurt connor's to to kind of becoming yeah. like this and they kind of touch on it ever so slightly i think like because it you get that scene where it's um if Frank khan kind of says to him like you either start human trials now or like well like now or or, or else and he kind of threatens him be like you know what happened to Robert Parker when he went yeah. kind of crossed us. Like, and it's even it's even like the point where they're like, just in case you didn't get that this man's sinister, we're also going to have him say the line, oh, we're going to just go take this down to the veterans hospital and start testing it on people here. It's like, just in case you didn't get he was evil, <laughs> here's an evil thing he's going to do. <laughs> and it gets much more to like an American audience as yeah. well, like, especially a certain demographic of American audience that line would have been like foaming at the mouth not our veterans (laughs) they've done enough for this country they don't deserve this they don't deserve to be made lizard men (laughs) 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 who knows depending on what what blogs you're reading some people believe they already are again yeah why did they play that and have kirk connors be running for president of the united states (laughs) he turns into a lizard Again, even the. Well, he's just like a yeah. You you could you could read this as as like Kurt Connors is some kind of like leader of like a QAnon faction or something like that. It's like some kind of like. uh, We'll we'll see tomorrow. Maybe he is now. Who knows? Uh, So yeah, it's got more minor characters. I feel like. Aunt May doesn't really get no. time to shine in this, but what do you think of Sally Field's performance as uh, as Aunt May? I like Sally Field a lot in general, um, and I watched the second one of this again uh, after I watched watched the first one to prep for this, just to whilst I was on the <laughs> whilst I was on the wagon, and uh, she's clear she's given so much more to do in the second one, and there's so much more fleshed out in that of their relationship in the second one because i think they end up looking at this and going oh we didn't do anything with aren't they <laughs> yeah we, we, we did it the, the one scene we do get is like i, I think it's quite the thing is for all this film's flaws it's got some like quite tender moments yeah i love this moment that you get between peter and aunt may what a pretty girl mm. yeah that's what Uncle Ben said. Did you ask her out? Why? Can't. Why? I'm just no good for her. Peter Parker, if there's one thing you are, it's good. Anyone has a problem with that can talk to me. 
I do like like that. So that 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 is nice. And there's there's a couple beats like that. You're right. Yeah. There's that. There's also that beat near the end where like he's starting to kind of realize the responsibility he still has to her, and he's like coming back after being like properly like battered and bruised after fighting a lizard, but he has remembered the carton of eggs this time. And they just have like a quiet moment where, and I feel like it's the film and they do kind of play on it a bit more in the second one that Aunt May kind of knows, but isn't telling him. And again, it's an element that's always existed where she kind you get the sense that she kind of knows. Um, but again, there's something about her, her characterization in this where it feels like they're trying to play a part play up a part of the character that hasn't really been played up in the Sam Raimi movies at all, in that uh, she's not his uh, maternal, like as in she's not blood-related to Peter Parker. She's related to him through marriage. Uncle, Uncle Ben is his uh, dad's brother. Uh-huh. Uh, so I, there's initially a part where I feel like, thought the film was kind of kind of explore that, maybe that separation and how that suddenly the two of them are having to kind of be alone as a unit and uh, addressing the kind of the fact that like more t- mm-hmm. there's more that ties them together than they don't need blood to tie them together. There's more that kind of builds that bond between them. But again, it doesn't. It's not really given the room to breathe. But in moments like that, it does does come through because you even you have that kind of initial comment. Sounds like she's kind of saying it like, "Oh, who pretty girl?" She's kind of saying it from a distance, not wanting to encroach too much until he lets her in a mm-hmm. bit more which it, it's nicely played again nicely played by two very good actors and yeah it's just something moments like that in the film do exist between uh, between those two between peter and gwen less so um the kind of antagonist figures they don't really get super amount of time together before he becomes a big lizard man but you are right those moments where it does let the emotion come in a bit more. Do play nicely. The, the the one thing about that moment though is it's like it feels like this film is really tussling with the idea of like who are we giving screen time to? Is yeah, it Uncle Ben or Aunt Aunt May, and then like that is so that 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 kind of tender moment is is followed by this. Peter. I know things have been difficult lately, and I'm sorry about that. I think I know what you're feeling. Ever since you were a little boy, you've been living with so many unresolved things. Well, take it from an old man. Those things send us down a road. They make us who we are. And if anyone's destined for greatness, it's you, son. You owe the world your gifts. You just have to figure out how to use them and know that wherever they take you, we'll always be here. So come on home, Peter. You're my hero. And I love you. I feel like that score is doing a lot of heavy. Oh lifting. yeah, that's literally Martin in Sheen moment. phoning in, it's isn't really it? Playing <laughs> <in that. laughs> yeah. 
So what do you make of Martin Sheen in this? Uh, Obviously a uh, a kind of made his name through a for for a Francis Ford Coppola film. Indeed. Uh, with Apocalypse Now, and obviously now he's here, here in his old age. Kind of sounds like he's just yeah getting that paycheck and yeah. I don't out I it. don't feel a lot a lot from him in this. I must say again, it's I, I think it's down to a way that the writers feel a little that the kind of commitment to Uncle Ben is a little flippant again, and like I said earlier, kind of barrels through the crucial beats and like particularly that kind of last line of that speech where he says you're my hero pete i just remember when i was watching it the other day and he said that i was like you haven't expressed that sentiment at all <laughs> when have you shown this <laughs> yeah yeah because yeah. you kind of get it throughout the film he's just like ragging on him yeah all the time, he's just right? really and pissed off with him all like... the time <laughs> yeah yeah and it it kind of like the way Peter is acting, and that's the thing, the way Peter is acting is kind of understandable from, like, a 13-year-old who kind of, like, is maybe understanding his emotions a bit more and is kind of starting to realise the ramifications of his parents kind of yeah. disappearing one night, probably a memory that he still has. But, like, at the age of 17, it's like, it feels like that kind of stuff should have been, like, addressed before now, and it kind of, like... It, it, yeah it, it draws back to my point where it's like why like it feels awfully convenient that it's it's the age 17 when he's kind of like i don't know a bit more like likely to become spite you know I mean yeah. it fits the plot a lot more that he's he's now going through this kind of turmoil of like who am i really who are my parents yeah and like uncle ben just I, I don't know kind of gets a bit short shrift in this again film. yeah you don't really feel the weight of it and like you Again, it does just feel like they're too nervous about being so directly compared to the Raimi run, particularly because across that whole that whole trilogy, the spectral presence of uh, Uncle Ben is really felt. Um, which is something that like this film, this film two film run ends up doing in a really weird way in part two, where it keeps having Dennis Leary po- pop up as ghost dad, ghost cop dad for, for a lot of that movie. <laughs> but yeah, again, it's just like, it undersells the kind of meaning of a lot of, it really undersells for me the impact that the death of Uncle Ben, Uncle Ben's supposed to have on Peter Parker. It's not, it, it's all technically there. It's just not, not really, there's not really a strong sense of commitment to it. Even to the point where, for a, for a beat, it's following this thread of kind of Spider-Man on the outside of the law of the law as a vigilante with a very specific agenda, hunting down uh, perps who look like uh, Uncle Ben's killer, and then what? That's quite an interesting look at like the idea of him wrestling with his responsibility. But then that all gets kind of shoved away and put back in the drawer and forgotten about when it needs to become a fight big CGI bad guy movie and have a big fight on the skyscraper at the end. That much more interesting idea of working with a spikier, angrier Peter Parker is just not given it. It's shoved away and just not given the space to breathe again. See, I I think what would have made this a, like a more effective origin story is if they kind of like, done it of the angle of him searching for uncle ben's killer and kind of like 
stumbles upon something that is a lot more low level that isn't kind of like linked back to his past yeah it's kind of like oscorp's like at the front and center of it like it is in the kind of raimi stuff mm-hmm. with like norman osborne as the green goblin it's like get away from that keep it the friendly neighborhood spider-man yeah do you know what I mean like, the, the, this kind of idea of like he's got these new powers he's on this kind of revenge mission but then kind of stumbles into something that he's a bit over his head to, to yeah to, to get into i think is a lot more interesting way they could have taken this there's a re- there's really like again all the ingredients are kind of there to kind of go that route but it's just not like it's the other paths taken really it's like to go for that more uh pg friendly summer blockbuster big movie bad guy but like i think the the seeds were like a really good kingpin story is here like particularly if you are following this track where he is kind of going more mm-hmm. into crime yeah. and uh people a bit more in the underworld if he does just keep stumbling further and further into that you've got like a you've got like a really cool layered kind of textured uh tale of like corruption and crime in new york that you could bleed in but it's, and it's something that they've done in the comics numerous times but yeah they 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 end up going more down the route that you've Again, you've seen in the Raimi run, which is weird for how trepidatious the film feels yeah, around yeah. that. Well, yeah, you kind of get the idea that like there is this seedy underbelly of New York with this exchange between Peter Parker and uh, Captain Stacy. Hmm. Is, assault- is assaulting people? <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, I saw that video. Him and the car thief and... I, th- I think most people would say that he was providing a public service. Most people would be wrong. If I wanted the car thief off the street, he'd already be off the street. So why wasn't he then? <laughs> Let me illuminate you. See, the car thief was leading us to the people who run the entire operation. It's been a six-month-long sting. It's called strategy. I'm sure you're aware of the term strategy. You've probably heard about that in school. Good. So yeah, that that very much speaks to that idea of yeah. I want to know where that draft was. I want to know where that draft is. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and it's the thing when when I saw like James Vanderbilt's name, I was like, ah, oh, you have written one of my favorite films of all time in Zodiac. Yeah, and like your name is on this script and i think he's been he's been done dirty a few times i think recently yeah. i remember like looking through his credits i think he wrote the original script to uh murder mystery that kind of like got uh happy madison right yeah <laughs> that, that, that was supposed to be like from the sounds of it was supposed to be a lot more akin to so like a uh, a knives out kind of thing, yeah. like a, a, a modern take on the Who Done It, and then got yeah Adam Sandler got his grubby mitts all over it, and was like, Nah, I, we're gonna we're gonna make it, we're gonna make a, a knockabout holiday me, me comedy. A holiday <laughs> I think, yeah, 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 yeah. It's gonna be Adam Sandler has another holiday. I think he's someone on uh, Independence Day too as well, James Vanderbilt. <laughs> oh, <laughs> simply, the poor guy. Yeah. Like, He's hopefully doing all right now. I'm hoping. <laughs> He's on Scream, I believe. <laughs> I'm hoping his obituary, like the the top line, is Zodiac. 
he's not he's not getting any of those. Writer, you don't want the amazing Spider Man. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> story by credit for the amazing Spider Man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's there turning in his grave. Yeah. Going, I did one drop. I did one drop. <laughs> it was when Raimi was there. <laughs> <laughs> So let, 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 let's talk about the way this is fil- this film is written. And um, I, I, I want to play a clip to, to give us uh, a, a, a little flavour of what this script delivers to us. Poor Peter Parker. No mother. No father. No uncle. All alone. He's not alone. I remember laughing at that line when uh, when they again it's like uh, it it ends up like it, that's taken from that bit, beat that we're kind of talking about where it does just end up as like fight big CGI bad guy on a skyscraper moment where it, it yeah. ends up going down this like because the lizard is like one of these great Spider Man villains like of all like kind of comic book characters like spider-man and batman have the best like rogue galleries of bad guys to pick from and a lot of like the spider-man bad guys are, are from this kind of as you were saying there's this element of man pushing science too far and uh hubris of man kind of having to uh reckon with the seeds that you've sown and being like li- literally di- uh, like changed and uh sent man as monster it's all all very literal but like all, all that kind of rich thematic nature and that like and again he's just another character with uh in another film where it's not also acting as an origin uh where you can kind of let uh the lizards have own a bit more of the narrative like in a way that kind of doc ock does in spider-man 2 mm-hmm. uh you'd feel like that would probably do more justice and allow it to sit more with the kind of approach that the film is doing if it's already established its main hero it feels too big of a big of a character to tick off in the space of everything else that's happening and yeah and and i think it's quite telling that it's like you hear like a big thing why raimi and sony ended up falling out was like kind of discussions about which villain to use and like raimi wanted the vulture and so anyone again wanted a few of them in the mix um and the lizard being one of them and the Raimi run and it's a shame for like Dylan Baker's version of Kurt Connors because he has two films where he's already got the relationship established with Peter Parker so he is kind of primed yeah for like Spider-Man 4 or what have you to become the lizard and instead they just kind of have to again fast forward through all the kind of key character beats of relationship between these two. And again, tying it back into this kind of forced, uh, mysterious uh, parent parentage question. And yeah, he, he, again, robs the character. He f- yeah. He feels like a second or third film villain. Yeah. That's what I mean. It kind of feels like the, the first film needs to be, and that's what I think that the, um, the the newest like run did quite well is like the vulture seems like quite a like as much as it is part of like the sinister seven and stuff like the sinister six or yeah. whatever it is like 
he feels quite low level and the way that they like portray him as like he his origin is like being a part of this cleanup crew yeah to deal with the aftermath of what like the avengers are doing and stuff like that feels quite neighborhood whereas like this feels like too like too grand and too like do you know what I mean like, yeah like you know that classic thing where like the third film it's like and it's somebody from your past like it feels like the third the third one in a trilogy where it's like that's the thing where it's like or somebody who's been lingering around like, yeah. like you said with the Raimi stuff like they kind of they'd built up that character whereas this it's like and it, it's also uh, just that just the motivation of him gets so murky and when as soon as he's kind of going down and dwelling in a dank sewer it beca- like that's when like everything kind of else gets dropped away and it just moves through this kind of perfunctory uh big bad guy with big plan to uh destroy new york like his ulti- ultimate plan in the end is to shoot up this toxin so that everyone in new york also then gets changed into a lizard um <laughs> which is born out of him like them just kind of going for the cliched he's mad now because he's a lizard man and he wants all other people to be lizard yeah. men because it's the next step in I, evolution <laughs> i really don't get like his motivation yeah like, it, it switches so quickly from being like he says to ifran khan's character i will never like do that like do you know what I mean? yeah like, he kind of like really like really like hills and it's like the next scene we see of him it's like he's injecting himself with the serum mm-hmm. and it's like, i just don't like and then it's like even by the end of it it's like what is your why why is your plan not what is your plan i know what it is but why is your plan like why do you really want to do this yeah and why do you have apart from the fact that peter parker is spider-man what is the real vendetta there do you know what i mean it's just like he happens to be the one person who's onto you yeah and it's like it just feels a bit forced and a bit just like well he'll do do you know what i mean mm-hmm. like, like it's like really his it could have been a lot more interesting if it was that thing of kurt connors was going after the ifran khan character and it's like spider-man is there in in between both of them do you know what i mean he's yeah. trying to fight like he 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 has to weirdly for, for for what is morally right protect somebody who is immoral and kind of like like real world bad yeah at the same time he has to take down this superhero bad who's kind of like yeah and it it it, it, it drop it drops the Frank Khan stuff early and then just goes Kurt Connors is mad, like as you said. Yeah. Like, he's mad, he's bad. and it, He's got a he's, thing he wants to shoot plan. in the sky. <laughs> and I don't even get that. Like, so I, this is my, I guess this is a problem I have with uh, uh, films in general when, like, there is a kind of a countdown. It's yeah. like, if you have a plan to do something, why allow, why not just plug it in, shoot that baby in the sky? Yeah. Because, <laughs> no like, it, like, even the that general plot beat the the very first episode of the nineties Spider Man cartoon is a lizard episode, and the plot of that follows a similar thing where he is kind of having a battle of his mind and has a device which he wants to use to turn other people into lizard men. But that twenty minute cartoon one manages to kind of make the motivation a lot clearer and also gives him 
more of an emotional link that's all his own because he has a wife that he initially ki- kidnaps to try to persuade her to come to his his way of thinking that lizard men should rule supreme and like even that like 20 minute cartoon does more for that character than like this this narrative does unfortunately as it ends up again it feels like there's a, a bit of a case of as as does happen with a lot of these kind of big property reboots or sequels it kind of and some of them can end up feeling more of an exercise in trying to maintain an ownership of a character rights or trying to keep a brand mm-hmm. alive and in the cultural conscious and this is this is coming at a weird time in like particularly columbia pictures and sony's relationship in marvel as the MB- mcu is hitting that mm-hmm. first peak with the first avengers and now they're suddenly like well, yeah I... we still have spider-man he's ours <laughs> yeah well uh, look, looking through the credits kevin feige is like an executive producer on this film so like mm. it is it is interesting that like he kind of has some some involvement yeah there sure was because how he, that works it or... would have dated back to work because he started working at marvel in the 90s so it would it date he's got a exec credit on all the like early x-men's and raimi spider-man's so he he would have been someone i imagined because be, because of his involvement with the development of when it was still a raimi movie he would have to kind of have that credit but I even remember at the time they were having discussions about maybe dropping in the Avengers skyscraper in the New York skyline to start like weaving in some ties. But again, this was at a point where just just before that kind of Sony email hack, where a lot of things were clearly at a boiling point amongst Sony execs. Uh, so nothing ever really got through until kind of after that watershed moment. <laughs> <laughs> So we kind of skirted around talking about the lizard, but what do you think of <laughs> Reese Barnes's portrayal? Yeah, <laughs> again, it's a shame because he's a good actor who's like, I think he's doing absolutely the, the best he can with the material he's given that goes from this kind of initially setting up this quite, quite caring, thoughtful, sensitive scientist that then just ends up barreling into uh, a very cliched I'm evil scientist and even like that clip there which is so just like pure like pantomime villain sort of approach that just doesn't sit with the tone or that has been established earlier in the film (laughs) and and this moment right when it's like where most films would put a seed of doubt in the the lead character's mind of like is is the person that that they kind of are involved with slightly like that no could be the villain they just like signpost it and go, this guy's the villain with this delivery right here. <laughs> you know, there's a rumor of a new species in New York, beautiful and quite large. What do you know about it? Have you seen it? No, it's not yet classified. But it can be aggressive <laughs> if threatened. So that, that, <laughs> that, that scene. <laughs> Is just like what the fuck? yeah, it's pure. It's now pure like, down it's... in Universal horror movie monster sort of Jackal and Hyde mode at that juncture, isn't it? <laughs> one thing from that scene that I was like devastated that never saw a turn is that like mutant lizard uh, mouse. 
Yeah. That is like, got... <laughs> why don't we get like a, a reprise of that in like the yeah. final act? Like, I really hope like, you, why you that webbed up that mouse across? so it's not get, getting anywhere because that looked vicious. <laughs> yeah, it looked terrifying. I was like, that's really like, and that's the thing that like, this film, I imagine even at a 12 a could really lent into the body horror. Of, yeah, particularly of, with of the, the lizard, lizard, right? Like that. <laughs> yeah, that's that. that, that, that one of my notes for just that first transformation bit is just crusty, slimy arm. <laughs> mm. Yeah, like all of that stuff. And then, and then we get that, like, it's clearly like a prosthetic because it's larger than a human hand when it when he peels off the crust. And yeah. And he's got this kind of, like, I don't know, like, looks like latex. He's got this, like, latex hand. Ooh. Like, Ooh, hello, hello, I've got my arm back. And... I don't know. I think, yeah, I, th I think the lizard was. And what do you think of the character design? Like the, the design oh, it's of very the lizard as it's well. Kind of very strange because I I feel like they're they're kind of looking at the, like the version of the characters got like kind of like a bit the version of the character in comic books and cartoons has like a big snout and he's you know, much more scaly. I, I like that they keep the web the the lab coat for a little bit at least, but like the. I, and I get on a design level that they kind of want to get rid of that snout and put it so it's slightly more human face, but they still do this thing where they keep the mouth, the lipless mouth, I should say, very long and what lo long across his face, so that even when he talks, it he can't. Mm -hmm. It's not helping like a performance come through really at all, and it just ends up looking kind of. Again, it feels like something that's in between certain designs or in between certain drafts that doesn't really feel like they've come to a coherent uh, final place on it. It just it feels odd to me. and looks a lot like uh, yeah. the uh, uh, like Cooper Troopers in um, the old uh, Super Mario Brothers movie with Bob Hoskins and. Um, that, that was literally on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> that was on the tip of my. I, all, all I was thinking every time it was on the screen was like, "Yeah, this is this is Super Mario Brothers. Yeah. <laughs> this is Super Mario, like down to like I couldn't get it out of my head, and it's like that thing of oh, I don't know, Matt. Like even even with No Way Home, I'm like they've had they've had yeah, to have like readdress that stayed with that. <laughs> well. Yeah, it's like please readdress it slightly because yeah. it was a bit it was a bit hokey. Um, so uh, one person we talked about is uh, briefly was Dennis Leary in this film. And before we kind of talk about his performance, I just want to uh, play a clip of his swan song moment. You're going to make enemies. People will get hurt. Sometimes people closest to you. So I want you to promise me something, okay? Leave Gwen out of it. Promise me that. Huh? You promise me. Oh. What are your thoughts on 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 Dennis Leary as Captain Stacy in this? Uh, and 
I, I just, like, most of the time throughout this whole film, I just kept going, Christ, he's a prick, isn't <laughs> Yeah, you, I, 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 I think the casting of Dennis Leary in anything, like, cause all, <laughs> yeah, all, all I remember of Dennis Leary is, is, is like the, the, the top 100 greatest comedians that would have played when I was about like, 10, 11 yeah. years old on, like, BBC Four, always around Christmas. And there was that thing, and kind of knowing him as this guy who just ate, like Bill Hicks and just chain smoking on stage, like really angry all the time, going like, "I tell you, fucking what, man! I tell you what, man!" Like just this, like, and it, it's kind of perfect casting, but it's like he's too much of a prick. Yeah, like, for, like he, he, and 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 his turnaround as a character in this of like being like arrest Spider Man. He kind of feels like he's uh, the police captain and. Uh, James Jonah Jameson rolled into one yeah, character. Yeah, they do kind of like, fold like, them in, don't they? Oh, I <laughs> there, there was one line in particular that was like, and again, it's not really Dennis Leary's fault, but like, yeah, he's a he's a he's a dude. He's a questionable dude anyway. We won't get into that, but like, <laughs> there, he's a real James Wood. Yeah. <laughs> there's what there's one line that is like it's as the they the. The police know the lizard's in New York and he's like he's dangerous and he's going out to do something that's going to harm a lot of people. And one of the first things they do when they turn up the scene, uh, the scene is Captain Stacy just out, shouts, "I want Spider-Man off the streets!" And I'm like, I think there's something. I think there's a bigger thing to deal with here right now, Captain Stacy. Yeah. <laughs> Leave Spider-Man alone, please. Prioritize. <laughs> I, I love this moment when the. Uh... <laughs> when the lizard is taking over Oscorp. Well, Paul, if I didn't see it, I wouldn't believe it. I won't venture to say exactly what it is that's crawling up the north side of the Oscorp Tower, but clearly it is not human, and it is very, very strong. <laughs> that that feels like the writers going like, we need to let the audience know that this is bad. It's like, we've seen the lizard. We know it's bad. Yeah, like, we get it Why now. are you now giving us like some kind of... <laughs> some news correspondent or like some uh, some random guy in a helicopter tell us it's real bad, real bad, <laughs> real angry. <laughs> it's, it reminds it's me of like this weird, there's a, even a weird bit in Spider-Man 3. I don't know if you, how well you remember Spider-Man 3, but the big oh, battle at the end between everyone, uh, there's just a, this random br British woman reporter down on the ground who's just going, oh no, Spider-Man's really in trouble now. This might be the end of Spider-Man. And it's just like, why are you here? Why are we hearing this? Amazing. <laughs> it reminds me of that kind of like, again, it's that like, like you say, it's like that it's a, a studio note probably worrying that audiences aren't getting what is in pretty explicit and implicit on the screen. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well I, I feel like we've kind of ragged on this film quite a lot. It, a, it doesn't do a, a lot, lot good, but like there are there are some like really significant like big components which are strong, which really do help it. <laughs> well, yeah. Let, let let let's talk about a couple of those. One of them that like I, one thing I did not think when rewatching this was like I would feel anything emotional, mm. <laughs> and. One of the moments that made me feel really emotional was this. It's okay. It's all right. Ah! Hey, look. Just a normal guy. Right? 
Want to hold on to this? Hold to my mask. All right. What's your name? Jack? Yes. Let's get you out of here. Okay. Stay very still. All right. Okay, I got you. So th that is really Spider-Man saving that up. the kid from a car, and 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 his so so Jack's dad is played by C. Thomas Howe, who a lot of people may Indeed know from is. Um, <laughs> Criminal Minds, who like plays like a kind of overarching villain in that. But like people in the Coppola sphere, like uh, listeners of this podcast, may know him as the lead in The Outsider. Mm -hmm. So a big Coppola connection with Steve Thomas Howe in a, a very small role. But that scene, like, all the other stuff, I don't give a shit about in that scene. Like, the yeah. kind of, like, like seeing the lizard. But there's something about that moment mm -hmm. with, like, Jack that, like, I'm not sure if it's, like, the thing, because like, I'm a dad, I was just like, oh, I've got a lump in my throat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it was... It's it's a really it's a really affecting moment. What do you, what what do you make of these kind of more? Yeah, I, I'm yeah, I'm really glad you moments. you brought that particularly that scene up uh, because I it's this is probably my least favorite Spider-Man film, but that moment with saving Jack on the bridge is probably in like my top five like cinematic Spider-Man moment moments. One because like. It's clearly a scene that means a lot to Andrew Garfield to get to play as Spider-Man because it's quite a significant scene for his Peter Parker's growth into kind of starting to accept the kind of responsibility he has. And it has that moment where he's like, uh, he's like he takes off his mask so that Jack can see his face so he isn't scared by him and hands Jack the mask and says like, put this on, it will make you strong to encourage. It's a, it's a really lovely beat of just like the kind of, pure hard nature of peter parker and spider-man and also just the mm -hmm. kind of speaks to the kind of strength that andrew garfield to talk is talking about in that hollywood reporter roundtable yeah. the kind of uh symbolic nature of the of these kind of characters for 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 kids and and for people when they're growing up in particular it's it's a it's a really 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 strong moment in this film <laughs> yeah 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 it really reminded me of that um, MJ speech in Into the Spider-Verse mm. where she kind of mentions that like uh, anyone can kind of put on the mask like kind of thing. Anyone can be like a hero and stuff like that. Yeah. I think like that is one of the crowning things of, of Spider-Man is that like he feels so like every day. Do you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Because he's like the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. It's like we could all do our little bit to kind of help out almost yeah kind of like which is why the genetic blood like plot line is so annoying <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and it is that thing of like because that moment really says like all you need to do is like yeah anyone anyone could put on the mask and be yeah spider-man do you know what i mean like it, it's it, it's that confidence and it's that strength and this film very very much flirts with that idea of like i don't know like just and it, it really shits the bed with it as well because it's yeah. like it, it is that thing of like you could find confidence in yourself by like kind of uh self-betterment and stuff like that but it's if anything this film kind of says it like 
you need to get bit by a spider and your, your all your problems will be solved. You'll be irresistible to the girl you fancy. Like, <laughs> you'll, you'll be able to deal with the bullies and stuff like that. Whereas it like it could have taken a bit more of a attack to it and gone like, mm. this could be anyone. Do you know what I mean? What? Like this really like. What what do you think like kind of going off of this scene as well? Um, because one of the scenes that I think often like kind of gets laughed about a bit with this movie is like. So C. Thomas Howell is not done yet in The Amazing Spider-Man. He comes back in the final act because it turns out he's also a crane driver. And when he hears Spider-Man's in trouble and needs to be able to swing to Oscorp, he rallies his buddies <laughs> in all the cranes to line up so Spider-Man can swing to uh, Oscorp Tower. That, that, again, that's that evolution of that kind of like New Yorker spirit that's in a lot of Spider-Man things, but it's a it's another beat that I actually quite enjoy for like again. As I a, love it as a I, really I good expression of Spider-Man. Yeah, I really like that beat as well. <laughs> uh, like I, 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 I've written in my notes, I've never been like emotionally moved by construction. <laughs> you move like, those cranes, boys! Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm like clutching my chest, like, oh, this is like, this is beautiful. Do you know what I mean? It's like, then, 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 you never know those kind of kind deeds you might do, how they might come to repay you, and it's kind yeah. of that's what it said to me, and it's like how much that for Spider Man, that's just part and parcel of being Spider Man, but yeah. for for that guy, that has like changed his fucking life yeah and this this is a way to repay spider-man so it's like yeah people might laugh at it but it's like that is a great scene is it, it. <laughs> is it any more silly than when like i think it's joey diaz in spider-man 2 where he's like we're new yorkers you gotta get passed up <laughs> yeah. like, you know I mean? is it any more silly than that it's just like, yeah it's that on a grander scale yeah right? it's like this is new york coming together like or, yeah or, or, like, i don't know it's it, i don't like i don't know it's, it's it's almost up there with uh the 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 statue of liberty coming through uh new york Ghostbusters Ghostbusters too. Too. <laughs> like, yeah new york coming together with good vibes yeah to, to, to get the job done like, yeah, very, there's some parallels there definitely apart from yeah there's no there's no is it bobby brown or there's no there's no there's no good tunes no <laughs> no chad craig um, <laughs> that's it yeah oh. the closest yeah, we get to an anthem yeah, well, is him skateboarding well, banger, to a uh, <laughs> him skateboarding to a coldplay song i think that's the closest we gotta get coldplay song. yeah oh yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, I had to Google that. I was like, what is that song? God, Coldplay. Like, Um, Till Kingdom Comes or something, or something like that. It feels like one person we haven't talked... It feels like one person we haven't talked about in this is Emma Stone. So as as we start to, like, wind things down, what do you think of of Emma Stone in this film? Yeah. So I know we have ragged on this, and it's like, it is only because I care about Spider-Man so much, and it feels like this is a film that really has elements that really are so close to working that it's so clearly murdered by different intentions coming in at different points in time and Fred's piling in and crashing and kind of going nowhere. Um, but the main thing that kind of allows this film to really stand up and kind of have its own identity more than anything else that it's doing is in kind of Garfield and Stone and 
it, it's just I remember when like that casting was announced and just thinking, Christ, that's that's perfect casting because she she particularly Stone and as it carries over into the, the second one as well, their chemistry is just so. It's got this. It's quite authentic as kind of like an awkward uh, teenage uh, burgeoning romance where they they both don't quite really know what they they're doing, but they the only thing that they really do know is that they really do like each other. And it yes, it helps mm-hmm. that they were dating behind the scenes, but like it is that sort of chemistry that is just so like lightning in the bottle for movie like movie romantic pairings like this, and it is. It gives the film, again, those moments of heart and character that do work in this. One come from the kind of nature of Spider-Man's character on a, on a kind of like DNA level, but also from the, the chemistry between these two and allowing even the kind of like silly bits, like there's that scene on the balcony where he's like, I've been bitten and she's like, yeah, so, so have I. And it's yeah. kind of like, <laughs> it's a bit like, oh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a weird lie, but like, I like the way they play it. Cause they're kind of like, they are just being like slightly awkward and, uh, <laughs> and teenagery about it. <laughs> yeah. I, I like that stuff. I, lo- I love that moment when she invites him round for dinner and she like kind of gets nervous. About, Did you like, bring your suit? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like, or like, even when she invites him round, and they're in like the hallway of school, and she says to him something to like the effect, like, she's like "I forgot to write the apartment on there," and it's very sweet yeah. and kind of like we're having Branzino. Uh, like, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I think their relationship is like, I, yeah, I think if they'd kind of lent into this being like a, a romantic comedy, and oh, by the way, he's Spider Man, could have like, yeah really like the, the thing is that this film is a hodgepodge and a, a bit of a mess of what it really wants to to do and there's kind of a lot of like threads dangling and stuff like that that don't get pulled on but like i, I think the stuff between andrew garfield and emma stone works yeah like <laughs> really well and she gets she 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 gets this brilliant line oh i'm in trouble <laughs> <laughs> when, when he eventually tells her that he's yeah. spider-man I, that's also like, I, I, I love that like, that's an element of like this take as well that like he, he he likes her so much and is so like so wants to kind of be with her that he he doesn't really try to hide the fact that he's spider-man from her which is quite a nice significant change from like the toby Maguire ones where he is trying so hard to keep that from mj for two films uh, with, with Gwen, he's just like he—he's so nervous to want to want to have something genuine with her that he's just straight out like I, I, I'm Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> with the, the weird I, like I, 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 <laughs> Yeah, that I—I I, I did write in my notes. Is that sexual harassment? Is that sexual just, assault? Like that kind of like whips to to him? It may be. <laughs> The, he is uh, a, one of my he is a bit creepy is, actually. Is, he keeps going up fire escapes and uh, just hanging around. He's <laughs> a real horn dog. <laughs> this is the, the horniest Spider Man yeah. I think we've ever got. In the fact that he's just always like, I think when they're sitting on the bleachers at one point, he's like, I just love kissing. Yeah. And it's just like, he always like, he always just wants to, and like when he takes her out for that swing beforehand, he's just all like, 
sweaty and disheveled and like kind of like it's like he's just like pulling her close and stuff and it, it kind of feels like okay, all right peter like as, as, as the as the spider bite affected your libido there's a like, you're, there you're is a really bit of like a edward cullen dog all of a sudden an edward cullen vibe now out of think about it isn't there to particularly this <laughs> this yeah. version of him <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 I think she's, she's, she's an absolute like, I don't know, like North Star in yeah. this film of just kind of she, same for the just, sequel as well. She kind of nails <laughs> everything she does right. Like she just like, yeah, she's she's perfect. She, she's amazing. Well, say so, uh, yeah, but <laughs> before we uh, wrap things wrap things up on this film, is there is there anything we've missed, Andy? Is there anything that I, on this film that you kind of feel like is a, gl a glaring admission. I would be remiss if I didn't uh, not tip, tip the cap to James Horner, as you've kind of highlighted in some of the clips you've picked and you said as well, like a lot, some scenes, the music does a lot of the heavy lifting. James Horner being a, 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 a contributed to many Amblin films. So he is someone I, I've gotten to know quite intimately through my own podcast. And this is one, one of his last like completed film scores he did before uh, his untimely death in a plane crash and it's a, it's, a, it's a really sweet, emotional, playful score when it needs to be but like you say it really carries a lot of the big sweeping moments of like sentiment yeah. in a way that it feels quite affecting so yeah, I just, tip of the hat as always to the, ma the great composer that was James Horner Yeah, like look I, I love how jaunty it is in some aspects. Yeah. Like, I, I played you before we, we got on a, a part of the, uh, it's, it's playing right now, the uh, playing basketball from the <laughs> score. And it's got this kind of like, almost like Home Alone-esque yeah. to it. That, like, I really dig. And like, I, I, I love the way that, yeah, he kind of, he knows the assignment, right? And it's like, when we need something that is emotionally devastating, yeah. we get something emotionally devastating. When we need something that is kind of like showing the playful, fun nature of Spider-Man, you're going to get that as well. Yeah. Like consummate uh, professional. Yeah, James Horner absolutely knocks out the park. So um, I want to ask you, you, you well, you've already, you've shut your load early on this. I wanted to ask you, <laughs> where does this rank in the kind of... Yeah pantheon of spider-man content but this is bottom of the barrel for you right? this is bottom of the barrel let me just load up my <laughs> letterbox list very quickly to revive myself where i've put all the other ones this is yeah this one's bottom and next is the amazing spider-man 2 there isn't a lot between the two these two for me i think they suffer from a lot of similar problems where there's so many threads going on the second one i enjoy a bit more because it feels that it's a lot more colourful and a lot more dynamic. Sorry, sorry, John. But uh, <laughs> the, the sequel shot by Dan, <laughs> by Dan Mendel is like just much more comic booky and looks like bright, poppy, and amazing, like an amazing Spider-Man sort of comic book feel. And it's hard not to get swept up in that kind of uh, bubblegum look sometimes. <laughs> and then, yeah, then it then it would go Spider-Man Three, then Far From Home. Then the first Raimi Spider-Man, Homecoming, Into the Spider-Verse, and then Spider-Man 2, which is one of my favourite films of all time and also just, yeah, still the perfect superhero film for me. <laughs> I, I, I guess you're excited for No Way Home, right? Especially the I, fact that we're I, getting I, Alfred Molina back. Yeah, I, I am excited as a 
Spider-Man fan and I like the idea of kind of blending universes. It feels like a the only way that like Marvel can really go now. But I like there's I, we've already been hurt by like uh, the Spider-Man sequels that throw in about six villains at once. So I I, I hope they've learned their lessons from the times that they've done it before and it's not quite worked. <laughs> yeah. I I I I will be devastated if we don't get Paul Giamatti. Yeah, right. Oh, <laughs> no way home. Like that's the you 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 can keep your electros. You can even keep your Green Goblin. I don't know. No, no. I I I will I will buy a ticket opening day for anything that. Happens <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I've got my tickets. Check, but... check, check me at the cinema with about five other people. Yeah. Watching the ca- the card counter because Willem Dafoe. Was <laughs> um so let me ask you is like where does andrew garfield rank for you as a a spider-man then is he bottom of the barrel for you yeah but not like it's not because i dislike him as spider-man i think he's try. i think he's really trying for something here and isn't Mm -hmm. quite serviced he isn't that well serviced by the material he's given but i i think what he's doing and the approach he's doing it i like He's he's such a kind of empathetic performer who likes kind of making his characters quite messy, and he like brings that to Peter Parker as well. And I I I, I do like it, but I I think I yeah probably out of the three, it would be my least favorite. And I think I I largely Tobey Maguire is my favorite just because of how much that's in de- like ingrained in childhood nostalgia more than anything else. <laughs> so- <laughs> Yeah, the thing is, like Andrew Garfield has, has proved himself time and time again of like what a fantastic actor he yeah. is. Like, I'm not sure how you felt about Tick Tick Boom, but like, yeah, I like e- e- even your view, even the views on that film, you cannot deny that like mm-hmm. he is kind of like an A plus like actor in like he carries that film. Yeah. It's kind of like he's almost there for like every single frame of it and like kind of is there of a plum of just like mm-hmm. i'm gonna throw myself into it and like even on like i don't know seeing him he seems confused like in in some regards to like where is he from like he has this kind of weird transatlantic yeah. accent like because i remember seeing him first of all like staying up late and watching sugar rush on like channel oh Four, yeah was, i remember uh, sugar rush <laughs> yeah i'm not sure if you remember it was a, a kind of like um lesbian comedy drama mm. set in brighton and like andrew garfield played like the kind of um neighbor next door who had affections for the lead character and i, I like, like I, I remember him from then so like to kind of watch him develop into this like actor who kind of like I'm always excited yeah. what he's going to be in next because he's kind of like what well, he's worked with Scorsese. He's kind of he he won an Oscar working with um, <laughs> and like, but like he's got he, he feels like he's got like there, there's great things to come. Yeah, Andrew Garfield. I think like his his like like you mentioned that uh, Hollywood Roundtable thing. Like feels like he's got his head screwed on, mm-hmm. especially like the the things that these comic book and these kind of mega blockbusters could be doing feels like a, a, a really either really business savvy or kind of like he's actually socially conscious and yeah is aware of of of, of what hollywood could be doing better i think like that's i agree that's, yeah to, to 
to share that on such a massive platform is 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 a is, is a great thing. So yeah, Andrew Garfield, despite being the worst Spider Man, seems like and a great guy. And yeah, and still a good Spider Man. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he just got he just got he just got dealt the wrong cards, yeah. right? He got he got dealt a pack of jokers. <laughs> Right, as I like to wrap these episodes up before we get to some uh, scorings, did you manage to find any Coppola connections within this film? And by that, I mean, did anyone who worked on this film work with a Coppola elsewhere in their career? I found a few, actually. Uh, (laughs) Let's go go one for one. You hit me with one, I'll hit you with one. So to kind of just bounce straight off of Andrew Garfield, he, of course, worked with... uh, yeah, Coppola and Mainstream, which is available in the UK now. I feel like you're the man to ask about this. Is it on iTunes now? Yeah, it got it got like quietly shitted out right. quite recently. I like, would like to watch that. By the way, <laughs> Mainstream is out now. Which, like, <laughs> yeah, I would really like to, that. Feels like he's kind of he, he he's channeling what like Jake Gyllenhaal was doing in Okja. <laughs> almost. Like, <laughs> like, those two, I think, like are kind of battling out to be like. Who can fucking do the weirdest shit, man? Who can kind of like go out there and really freeform jazz a performance? And I, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm loving it, especially as a, a Nick Cage fan. It's like I'm always there going, who's the next Nick Cage? Who's going to like have this really <laughs> burgeoning great early career and then drift off into obscurity and then come back as as, as a great actor? Uh, um, so... Emma Stone, let's throw that one mm-hmm. out there. She is in The Croods and The Croods A New Age with Nicolas Cage. Indeed. Over to you, Andy. Um, I'll, I'll get the big obvious one out of the way. Martin Sheen, he's in Apocalypse Now, <laughs> directed by Francis Ford Coppola. You may, <laughs> you may have heard of it. <laughs> it's kind of a big deal. Uh, Reese Farns, here's, here, here's like um, a, cu- a couple of weird ones. He is in A Christmas Carol from 2001. Ah which had Nicolas Cage as the voice of Marley's ghost. Great pick. And he's also in Little Nicky and Human Nature with Patricia Arquette, who at the time of their release was married to Nicolas Cage. Great pick. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's my next one? Uh, Efren Khan is in the Darjeeling Limited with Jason Schwartzman. And is also in Jurassic World. Yes, also shot by John Schwartzman. Yes, of course. John Schwartzman. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, Writer Steve Clove. Mm. So, way, 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 way before he wrote all the Harry Potter films, he wrote a film called Racing with the Moon, Mm. which stars Nicolas Cage and... Sean Penn, Sean I think. Penn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So that, 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 that's a great one. So uh, that was an early days one. one uh, my next one that I had was Av Arad, who's a, a producer on this movie and was has been at Marvel since like the early '90s and is particularly really heavily involved with the Sony produced Marvel movies. He was, of course, a producer on the two Ghost Rider movies starring Nicolas Cage. <laughs> Lovely, lovely. Well, we, 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 we shone a light on James Horner earlier in this chat. Mm-hmm. So James Horner did the scores for both Wind Talkers, which starred Nicolas mm-hmm. Cage, and Captain EO, a film that Ooh. Francis Ford Coppola, a short that he did in the 1980s, which stars Michael Jackson oh. 
and Angelica Houston. I never knew that existed. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which will be covered on this podcast at some point, despite despite the fact it it, it, it stars Michael Jackson. Uh, do you have any more Copla connections? I have a couple us, more. I, I have a couple more direct ones, and then some of the more where it's a bit of a kind of seven degrees of like a couple of where there's a bit of a lily pad in between. But another direct one okay, I found okay. was uh, Pietro Schiala, who's one of the credited editors, editors on this film, also edited Kick-Ass, which of course stars Nicolas Cage Amazing. as Big Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the other editors on this film mm. is Alan Edward Bell, who was the first assistant editor on North, which <laughs> uh, has a voice cameo from... Uh, <laughs> Nicholas Cage's brother, uh, Mark Coppola, and keep it on North, J. Michael Reaver was the production designer on this and North. <laughs> um, no. I've seen North. I'll chuck a couple more <laughs> and, then, and, and then we'll get to your last ones. Uh, the casting director, Francine Masler, worked on Fifty Shades of Grey, ah. which is also lensed by... G- uh, John Schwartzman. Oh no, wasn't actually. He did 50 the sequels, didn't he? <laughs> he did the sequels, but I've recently covered Fifty. <laughs> so it's on the brain. Uh, and and Simone or X one oh, yeah. I can remember that <laughs> Which yeah, again, it, John Schwartzman was the DOP and. Last but not least, the set direct, uh, decorator Leslie Pope worked on Funny People, Sea Biscuit, Simone, and The Family Man. Ah, delightful stuff. I've got a couple more that what like C. Thomas Howell we mentioned earlier was uh, uh, Pony Boy and uh, The Outsiders. Uh, who mm-hmm. else have I got? I've got uh, Sally Field, who I've connected via Robin Williams and the Francis Ford Coppola film Jack. <laughs> <laughs> and then they missed out fire right yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um and then laura ziskin another producer on this uh produced to die for which stars matt dylan who was both in the outsiders and rumblefish directed by francis ford and my last one that oh, i right. had is uh alvin Sargent, who's one of the writers uh probably the more tenuous link one because it was like a film i've never heard of uh also wrote the Al Pacino F1 movie, Bobby Deerfield. And of course, Pacino was in the Godfather trilogy. <laughs> we did quite well for the connections well, there. There was good as I kept mining through, I was like, oh, there's more more here than I thought. <laughs> yeah, like the thing is I have to like call it a day at some point because you can start getting into like runners and it's like yeah. this this guy was a runner on this and this this person will did did this. Oh, um, I've got I've got one last sneaky one that was on the another page of my document, which mm-hmm. is Kim Barrett, the costume designer, was also a costume designer on Free Kings, ah. which was directed by David O. Russell and has a performance by Spike Jones, who at the time was married to Sophia Coppola. So there you go. With all of those connections out of the way, Andy, let's rate this film. And we have a unique way of rating films mm. on this podcast which is asking, what would be the perfect wine pairing for this film? So I, I don't know my wines very well. I just know I like red. I, I, I do think The Amazing Spider-Man would be a red. 
uh, just, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of red on that suit. So, <laughs> uh, but I, I always do try to remember like the labels of wines that I've liked whenever I've been out. So like if I then ever find myself craving the taste of the grown-up grape juice, as I like to call it, I'll, I'll aim to try and find that label that I know I've tasted and I've liked. But for me, The Amazing Spider-Man represents a bottle of red where I've picked up a label thinking that it's one that I've tried before, but then realize I've gone wrong. It's just right Wait a second. <laughs> this is like zero percent. It's like this other one, but <laughs> yeah, I've been had. <laughs> That feels like the perfect uh, description for this film. It's it, it's got it's got um it's got notes yeah. of the film. If you like. It's got yeah, it's, it's more. It's got it's got a slight flavour profile, but at the end of the day, it feels quite uh, it tastes quite flat. vegetative and earthy. Yeah, yeah. It's a little flat. a couple of points. Perfect, you're like, oh, that, yeah, that that tastes a bit different. I don't like that. That's good. But then, it, yeah, that, then that then that will get a bit lost itself as well. <laughs> Yeah, there's a there's a weird aftertaste in your mouth. Yeah. After you're like, ah, I don't think I'll be visiting that one again. <laughs> uh, so, is this a bottom shelf, middle shelf, or top shelf wine? AKA, is this film good, bad, or real bad? I think it's probably. I think middle shelf. Uh, I know, mm-hmm. like you said, that, like it's not a film I think is great by any means, but I don't think it's the. I don't think it's poor. I think it's it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> Perfect. Now, getting on to some more questions. Which Coppola f- member mm. would you keep? But in doing so, you get rid of the filmographies of the entire rest of the family. I know a couple of people have said this one, but I feel like it's the only, it's a way that you can kind of have the best of both worlds a little bit because as well as being a fan of Spider-Man, being a fan of Francis Ford and being a fan of the Godfathers, there's something I'd argue I'm probably a bigger fan of than all those things combined, and that is the Rocky franchise. So in order to also keep the Godfather trilogy, I'm going to keep Talia Shire so I can have <laughs> have my Rocky <laughs> franchise and have my Godfather trilogy. <laughs> Somebody's listened to my Rocky Free episode. Yep. <laughs> I found the cheat code. I was just like, that Somebody's is perfect. The left down, right up, left down, right up, R2, L2. Exactly. Yeah, it's the perfect answer. Yeah, <laughs> and absolutely, yeah, I completely yeah, I, cribbed that from that episode just because there's no better answer in my eyes. <laughs> I, I think Talia Shire might be the kind of like uh, the secret weapon yeah. of the Coppola family. It mm-hmm. just like, well, not only has she got this kind of really interesting and like stellar career of her own and stuff like that, it's like she has probably uh, <laughs> given us one of the most productive members of the Coppola family, <laughs> Jason Schwartzman. Like, I was going to say, yeah, and she's oh, also the oh. only reason we're talking about this film today, really. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And and, and even that is a, is a stretch because it's only by man. Yeah. <laughs> like, he, 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 was, he was Jack Schwartzman's son already, but I think I read in an article somewhere that 
Nicolas Cage referred to him as his cousin. Yeah, and it's like, nice. if he was, <laughs> if John Schwartzman was at, at Christmas dinner at the Coppola uh, family estate, he's getting talked about on this podcast. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Talia Shire, as I said on that episode, might be the right answer. And, uh, yeah, I've got a lot of, got a lot, a lot of affection for, for Talia Shire, mm-hmm. especially, especially the, especially the Rocky films. Uh, people would have heard last week, my, um, episode on rocky four which has turned out to be a, a real mammoth episode yeah. it's not just not just one guest I, I i had a phone call uh last night time of recording with uh liam dempsey from oh, yeah. the rocky free episode all about his opinions on uh the rocky four director's cut we kind of Rocky Four, Rocky said we were going to talk for twenty minutes. <laughs> yeah, we said we were going to talk for twenty minutes, and as you as you'll hear on that episode, we talked for a lot longer than twenty minutes. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah, that is not a cut that deserves twenty minutes. <laughs> that needs bigger. <laughs> Amazing, Andy. That's yeah. You've you you've you've really wiggled your way in and found that found that found that cheat and i i I love you for it so based on this film alone are the coppolas the greatest film family of all time i probably have to go with no based on on this film alone (laughs) i wouldn't blame you i wouldn't blame you i wouldn't blame you too just on this evidence i'd have to give it to the houstons i think Hey, you get some, you get some Copler in there with the Houston yeah, as well. Yeah. So I'll have it. You get some, you get some, yeah, you, you get some Roman, you get some uh, Francis. So uh, I'll, t- I'll take the Houston. They're, 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 they're happy to play to play second. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, these kind of big like film families, there seems to be some crossover at some point anyway. Whether it's uh, the Arquettes, obviously, with uh, <laughs> like. Nicholas Cage marrying one of them for one, and I think David Arquette crops up in Airheads. So yes, <laughs> was the DOP on? So like, yeah, there's a. I love all these crossovers you get. So um, let's move on to the most important question of this podcast. The thing that uh, everyone wants to know, Andy, is what does Bill Murray say to Scarlett Johansson <laughs> at the end of Lost in Translation? I think he says, I believe that if you can do good things for other people, you have a moral obligation to do those things. That's what's at stake here. Not choice, responsibility, which is a line I've completely forgot to bring up back up because it's just, this is, this is Uncle Ben. This is how the film rewrites the line with great power comes great responsibility. And it trips up on it so much that I just had to try and work it in some way. And I forgot to actually bring it into the conversation. <laughs> It's an uh, awkward, it awkward like line. <laughs> well, yeah, with with, uh, with with Bill Murray's delivery in uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife, it feels like the kind of line he might, yeah, he might definitely whispered in her ear at the end of that film. It's on a it's on a par with the energy levels of Martin Sheen's performance. <laughs> that movie. Right, uh, Andy. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Obviously, you host the podcast, as I, as I mentioned. I've uh, 
I had the absolute pleasure of being a guest on it. Indeed. Rambling, an Ambling podcast. Um, tell people about that podcast and, and where people can find it and where people can find you as well online if they want to keep up to date with what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So Rambling and Ambling podcast is a podcast I do with my good buddy, Joshua Glenn. And it it's a, it's a show where we basically work through the filmography of Amblin Entertainment, going through every film in chronological order. Uh, so we've already covered some of like the early, big early 80s hitters like E.T. and Back to the Future. And Petrus joined us for Harry and the Hendersons, which was a, a wild, obscure <laughs> ride. <laughs> <laughs> and we're just getting our foot in the 90s now. So like, yeah, come, come along and join us on a ride. There's still plenty more Amblin Entertainment films to get into you can find that anywhere you get your podcasts uh you can follow the podcast on twitter at rambling amblin i myself you can follow on twitter at andy godian 93 and i'm also up on letterbox if you want to keep track of everything and everything i'm watching and uh, what i have to say about it <laughs> <laughs> well andy it's been an absolute pleasure having on the podcast thank you so much coming and making some copal connections with me well thank you for having me man it's been an absolute joy great to great to chat with you again and I, i'm loving everything you're doing with this podcast like I, like particularly like i i and it is yes because i'm a big fan but all the big rocky dives i've just been lapping up <laughs> <laughs> i'm so, so happy much, to hear man. there's so much more coming <laughs> <laughs> Thank you once again to Andy Godian for that amazing chat about all things Spider-Man. Uh, if you've seen the new Spider-Man, how does it rate in the pantheon of Spider-Man content that's out there? And where does this film uh, rank for you? I'd love to know your thoughts on The Amazing Spider-Man and Spider-Man No Way Home. I will hopefully be seeing it uh thursday of this week so yeah the day after it comes out if there's still tickets available i'm pretty 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 slack at stuff like that i will i will kind of try and get a ticket on the day and if it's not there then i won't go that day i'll go another day instead so if you want to get in touch with the podcast you can do so on all the socials and it's at caged in podcast on twitter instagram facebook and letterbox or if you want to drop me an email you want to go a bit long form you want to keep it private little little chat between me and you you can drop me an email cagedinpod at gmail.com and if you're not listening to rambling and ambling podcast do check it out it's absolutely fantastic it really does feel like a warm hug of a conversation and andy and josh are fantastic hosts they almost make me jealous in the way that they kind of came out of the gate running and they yeah their 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 podcast they they perfectly released them on a sunday as well and it kind of they encapsulate their podcast feels like watching an, an ambling movie it's just this um yeah big warm hug of a podcast and i thoroughly recommend you check that out 
As I'm recommending podcasts already, it's time for my little uh, Christmas recommendation section. In the lead up to Christmas, I thought I'd give you a present of some amazing podcasts you could be listening to. And this week's pick is W-Rated, hosted by uh, Daisy Edwards and Claire Ellen Hope. And they are looking at the bottom 100 movies as ranked on IMDb. And... um, as somebody who has watched his fair share of bad movies for a podcast, I I sympathise with them, empathise with them, and love what they're doing because they never feel like it's mean spirited. They they're just trying to figure out why are these films on the bottom one hundred, and I absolutely love their uh, kind of approach to it and the way that they kind of I I love the fact that a, a film that I, I I weirdly thoroughly enjoyed, I know who killed me. Uh, they dedicated like two episodes to it talking about just the the full mania and just craziness of that film uh with uh former guest uh andrew pope and it's an absolute delight and they've yeah they've got a whole host of fantastic episodes over on that podcast so do check out w rated as for next week here on this podcast we will be talking about an absolute modern christmas classic which as i've seen a lot of podcasts are doing for their christmas episode this year because it is an absolute joy but we will be giving it the full coppola connections treatment when i'm joined by russell bailey of the not just for kids podcast and we'll be looking at the jason schwartzman starring klaus ah i really 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 can't wait for you guys to to hear this and uh me me and i know i know russell loves this film i haven't actually recorded this episode yet but i'm sure it's going to be a lovely burst of christmas joy in your ear holes just before the big festive day itself if you love this here podcast and want to support it please do so by heading over to ko-fe.com to buy me a little digital cup of coffee uh, the forward slash on that is of course caged in pod yeah and as i said you can buy me a digital cup of coffee and just a, a one-off payment to to help keep the lights on over here at caged in towers or if you want to do a bit more of a you want a bit more commitment with your support you can head on over to patreon.com forward slash caged in pod where ah, from january you'll be delighted to uh hear a brand new podcast which will be twice a month and it is my deep dives into the films of francis ford coppola's cohort formerly known as the movie brats the first season will be kicking off with a little look at brian de palma you won't want to miss this i've recorded two episodes so far on phantom of the paradise with the amazing jeanette and daryl Barr of sudden double deep fame and an episode on mission impossible with amazing comedian and podcaster nathaniel metcalf again that you won't want to miss and you can get all of that goodness for as little as two pound fifty or three dollars a month not bad eh or if you don't want to part with your cash you can always always recommend this podcast to a friend let people know uh, recommend it to enemies, recommend it to your family, loved ones, hate ones, everyone. Just recommend it. Look, do you know what? 
Uh, hire out a billboard and like, yeah, just put up a massive advert that says, hey guys, listen to Caged In. It's really good. And Pedros is a, a really lovely guy who has self-esteem issues and would like you to listen to his podcast. Or you can go through some formal channels and uh, rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now i know every podcast says it to you but it it does it, it, it really does help kind of get uh exposure to podcasts and stuff like that uh, so yeah give me that beautiful beautiful five stars it, it really really will help out not just get this podcast to more ears but will boost my self-esteem give me that christmas present of some self-esteem please baby so, as always, I have been Petros Patsonovus, your guide through the crazy world of the Coppola family tree. And remember that if a child is hanging in a car hung by web off of a bridge to always save them, as you never know if their dad is going to be a crane operator who can help you in your time of need. So, I'll catch you next time as we talk Klaus. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, A Droop Town Limery Main, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.